What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. I'm with Cole Swanson, as always, and we got two guests with us today. Um, Nicole, what's going on? All the way from Florida? Hey, yeah, down here in West Palm Beach, dealing with all these new positive cases day to day. That's awesome. I'm a um, P4 student at Palm Beach Atlantic University, about to one foot out the door. So almost done there. Are you, um, do you have an April rotation? Yes, I actually just finished. I was on my academia rotation, which I love academia. So that's something I definitely see myself doing in the future. And actually on that rotation, that's kind of how I got in contact with you. That's where I got this uh, DI question about COVID-19, spoiler alert, into what we're talking about today. Gotcha. So um, so this is your last rotation that you're done after this? Like, so after today? Yeah, I'm done. Dude, that's oh, awesome. We were done on Friday. Oh, nice. Nice. Congrats. That's awesome. Yeah, congrats. Yeah, definitely like almost two feet out the door now. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. How was it when you finished uh, when you finished your last like moment of pharmacy school, like walking to your car? Did you feel anything? Well, I mean, it wasn't really walking to my car because at this point we're like all quarantined. All quarantined. That so makes sense. that was home right. anyway. Just think about so the Netflix on the way to the car anyway. <laughs> I remember when oh, I was. Exactly. I remember I was leaving school, like, because I was on campus for my last rotation, and I'm leaving, like, the medical university, and I remember walking my car going, huh, I feel like I would feel something different, but I'm just kind of going home yeah. <laughs> after all just this another, time. Just another day. No, I, like Patrick, I was like, I get to go home and study now for right. mm, a few weeks till, know, till yeah, the exam. I literally have my RX prep book on the table right next to me and my schedule on the wall, so yeah. yeah we, we won't blame you if you're studying while we're talking. We can kind of drone on, so you'll have plenty of time. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so uh, our second guest, Patrick Key. What's up, Patrick? Hello. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, I'm surprised honestly, uh, Mike we, let you back on. Honestly. Yeah, we were really on the fence about it. <laughs> Actually, a three-peat if you think about it. It's oh, true. It's definitely it really, a three-peat. Yeah. So, well, when you're a student, it's an obligation. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Do you want to come <laughs> on my joking. podcast? You say, well, I don't want to fail. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I called Patrick literally at, like an hour ago maybe. And yeah, I was like, hey, because he, he had texted me. He's like, hey, yeah, I'd be cool with doing a podcast maybe Friday or Saturday and I called him was like hey listen instead of that terrible idea how about we do it in an hour from now <laughs> well it's funny because like um <laughs> if you've been watching the core console feed I mean they've been coming out like every three four days recently so I, I was thinking man he's probably not gonna want to wait a whole week until his <laughs> next one yeah a week it's an eternity it's like a, it's like a nightmare it's like seven episodes we're supposed to get done that week <laughs> that's right so Patrick, what are you doing these days, man? Because you're uh, finishing up your first year residency. Yeah, I'm finishing up. I'm um, I a, have accepted a PGY two in psych next year, um, and I'm coming off my infectious disease rotation now. Um, it was a great experience. Seriously, that's awesome. Nice. I I went in there, and like maybe a lot of students would sympathize, but I went in there, and I even told the preceptor, "Look, I have a huge glaring weakness, and it is ID." And and she told me, "She's like, you know what? Everyone says that." Um, I think that if you don't say that, you're probably wrong. Um, so, but by now I can at least say competent. Um, but one of the best, real cool features of this month has been uh, this like national tragedy that we've been going through um, of COVID that hopefully we're trying to avoid. I was gonna say, what a time to be on infectious disease rotation. You it's actually weird how coincidental it was. <laughs> so, speaking of COVID. Speaking of. So we are actually going to be doing a follow-up episode. We did COVID, what, like in February? It's February 3rd. That's right. Okay, I knew you'd know. How many things have changed since then, huh? Like, like, <laughs> at, least, like, like at least whoa. three. It's not even close. <laughs> nope. Not even close. And the thing is, is I tried to tell Cole back then, I was like, listen, we need 
to do an episode but have all the new stuff and he was like no let's just talk about this old old stuff and here we are now we have to do an update is that what he said he <laughs> yeah. said let's just do the old stuff <laughs> so no updates of anything <laughs> so um we're gonna do an update since so much has changed and uh, we're gonna walk back through it and uh patrick's actually um are you, are you leading the group uh, or how i can i no no i mean like for the oh, group at work. i thought you meant this group, <laughs> that, which that i have definitely not. and will <laughs> um, uh so i'm not I'm not leading, but I would say that whenever people have questions, they usually ask me, which is a really cool feeling as a resident. Um, we essentially, we were looking like back in like March 10th. Um, I was able to like kind of get my name out there because they said, look, we need something to deal with COVID. Um, we have no national guidance. What are we doing? Um, and so through just like a lot of, um, primary research in vitro stuff, um, we were able to determine that hydroxychloroquine was probably going to be our treatment of choice, at least in the interim. Um, we were able to snag some before four days later, uh, our president Trump comes out and says, Hey, we're doing hydroxychloroquine, everybody let's make that on back order as fast as possible. <laughs> um, and then they did. So it was, it was kind of nice. And so ever since then people have been like, okay, but like, what about this? And I'm like, guys, I just did that one time. Um, but, <laughs> but it's been cool because like, um, COVID is one of those new things. I feel like this is such a rare opportunity that you can see a disease state and its uh, like guidelines evolve day to day, hour mm-hmm. to hour. Like today, we were even talking about there's some trial. It's uh, a secret <laughs> that we'll talk about. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out soon. Uh, Mike asked me if I've read it, and I said no, but I read stuff about it every day, and it came out midday, so I missed it. It's like yeah. it's unbelievable how fast this stuff is like flying out there. Yeah, and uh, I actually the only reason I got the trial is uh, Patrick. Uh, pointed out to me when we were not before we started recording it was uh because um my my buddy from instagram actually dr uh dr eddie um sent out a, a message on there on uh, instagram talking about the new trials i asked him about it so he sent me a link he'd already written a whole summary of it and all that stuff so i feel like it's slacker as well so okay yeah. <laughs> i think i actually shared that on my instagram when he posted about it i actually shared it on my story did you Wow. Yeah, because it's so it's such a good analysis. Yeah, all the time because it's constantly coming out. So it's good to have people that are analyzing it. We can share it quickly. It's been really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess you know the first episode we did about this, we kind of just went through like some basic stuff, some basic background, like you know talking about the the coronavirus itself is mm-hmm. not some kind of a new thing, um, but talking about that this novel um, version of it is uh, what we're having to deal with. So we're going to spend a lot more time talking about the actual potential treatment options this time. So, um, Patrick, you kind of brought up the hydroxychloroquine, um, to begin with. So what have you kind of seen? We'll just start off with that. And then, and Nicole jump in as well. Cause uh, I know you've been looking at a lot of this stuff too. So yeah, she's got um, the packet. <laughs> Nicole, oh, yeah. oh, I'm right. <laughs> Nicole put together a phenomenal, like, like summary of all the different studies and all these different um, like evidences going on right now. And then she's been updating it, I guess, as the month goes on. So it uh, is much more impressive than anything I've ever put together. So it was, it was, it was a lot. <laughs> Thank you. No, stuff's constantly changing. So I'm trying to keep up with it and update it. But like we've been saying, trials are coming out midday. So by the time you're ready with it, there's something new. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so do you want to talk, you want to talk about Plaquenil first? Yeah, let's start okay. with that. Okay. So, the reason that we looked into it at all is, like he said, you know, coronavirus isn't new. We're talking about like SARS in 2002, 2004. Um, and uh, I, I hesitate to say thankfully, but the good news is that we have a lot of data about drugs that were tested for SARS-1. And one 
there, we have like a whole collection of those drugs, including the ones that you might be hearing about, like the ones that were tested were like Tamiflu, Kaletra, uh, hydroxychloroquine, maybe azithromycin, maybe um, maybe some others. Um, the big ones that were studied head to head, though, in terms of like actual active SARS patients, were Plaquenil and um, and uh, the Kaletra. And so the reason that we think that these are going to be effective in this novel one is because we've shown that this novel virus attaches at the same receptors that SARS-1 did. And those are your ACE2 receptors in your lungs, but naturally, um, as we've already discussed, those ACE2 receptors are all over your body. And so that's why COVID can be so invasive is it just goes from cell to cell, receptor to receptor, it inactivates as it goes. Um, the reason that we thought about um, hydroxychloroquine specifically um, and sorry, I'm going to reference my summary here. Um, is a <laughs> it's a primary reference. It's, it's a <laughs> primary literature. I think it counts as secondary. It's a collection <laughs> of primary. Um, so, um, so anyway, there were not like too many clinical trials, unfortunately, during the SARS outbreak. It was only afterward that they started looking at like how does this actually combat the virus. And so, chloroquine, and note that's not hydroxychloroquine, was actually studied pretty pretty closely to show that it stops the both attachment and proliferation of the virus. So, by that I mean it stops the attachment at the ACE2 receptor, but it also acts in changing the actual pH of the endosome. And imagine, imagine you know a a virus without vesicles. Like, what's it even going to do? Um, so, it's pretty neat in doing both of those. But there's also this hidden um, interaction that this new paper on um, SARS-2 points out is that hydroxychloroquine is also one of the mainstays of RA, mainstays of ILD, at least in pediatrics. Um, it's got a very strong anti-inflammatory effect. And notably, the way that that happens is through IL-6, IL-10, and with azithromycin, there's some in interferon beta-1, but maybe. Um, but what we're sticking with is IL-6 and IL-10 for the big ones. And so that stops not only um, the viral attachment, the viral replication, but it also helps combat this cytokine storm. Um, is the theorized mechanism. Again, we have very little data to show hydroxychloroquine preventing COVID-induced cytokine storm, but that is the thought about how these patients are living versus the ones um, who haven't. Uh, and again, like, but but when I was researching this, there were no clinical trials except for like the SARS one, so we had to like extrapolate right. a lot. Um, <laughs> So the reason that this one's so good, though, is because very recently, some of y'all may have read, um, and I mean, I want to like include y'all in this discussion. I'm no, no, gonna, please like, steal the show. No, keep on going. Uh, I'm just okay. kidding. You're doing wow, great. You're doing sarcastic. great, Patrick. Um, so Gautret et al., what is our first? So we're talking 36 patients. Almost all of them completely recover in terms of viral load right. um, elimination. So what did we get from that? That was like, what, two weeks ago? That's the French study, The French, right? study, the French right? one, that's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're, you're you literally asking, asking us. Oh, yeah, I'm not setting myself up for another. For another Listen, one. don't. This is not the time to quote us. Short in time to resolution of symptoms, right? So, or you're talking about drug-wise, Plaquenil and some Z-Pack, right? That's correct. Right. So the first study actually, I think, was very weak. It, I mean, um, there have been plenty of analyses out by now, but um, they excluded six patients out of 36. That's pretty bad. Um, three of which were escalated to ICU. One of which died. Um, and there's a really cool Medscape analysis that points out maybe this means that the treatment hurts people more than control if the control group had no patients die. Um, but then this more recent Gautret et al. from like two days ago, um, that's where we see how long patients get the symptoms before they need to be hospitalized, how long you can test positive after treatment, and then also just this like general view of treatment. For some reason, they refuse to put in clinical data. It's bizarre. No temperatures, no nothing, no cough. It's just viral load, 
PCR testing days. It's like crazy to me um, that they don't want to just do a more complete study there. Um, but anyway, that leads me up to, and so by the way, these are both with a hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin combo. The hydroxychloroquine at um, 400 uh, twice a day and then transitioning into 200 twice a day for four days is my recommended therapy based on the in vitro data. You reach about 83 times the MIC um, of, uh, what is it? No, not MIC. Oh gosh, <laughs> EC50? <laughs> um, anyway, look, 50% that's needed to <laughs> inhibit the virus. Not great with acronyms. Point is you get 83 times that in only five days. And hydroxychloroquine has a half-life of 40 days, maybe a little longer depending on the patient you're looking at. So my big things for hydroxychloroquine is theoretical benefit through its mechanism, anti-inflammatory prove, proven um, effectiveness. We've got no renal dosing, no hepatic dosing, and a long, long half-life. The only real toxicity we're worried about are G6PD deficient patients for hemolytic anemia. And then outside of that, it's really just retinal accumulation, which only happens, or at least it's mostly only been seen in patients who have taken it over 10 years. So if I'm saying five days, I really think it's likely we can avoid that. Now, to be fair, we don't have any data saying hydroxychloroquine definitely doesn't cause retinal toxicity in five days, but it's very unlikely if we only see it at 10 years. So that leads us to our study from today, though. Tell me all about it. So, I, like I said, I'm not going to, I'm just going off the summary. I haven't even read through it myself, but uh, Dr. Uh, Eddie Joe seemed to do a very, very awesome job. Um, he's a critical care um, physician, and uh, so he's on the front lines of this stuff. So he put together this um, summary. So the trial that came out um, had, I don't even think it's actually, when I say it's come out, I don't even think it's actually gone and been published yet. I think he just, I'm not really sure where he got this information from, but it's still on, uh, <laughs> it's still on, it's on clinical trials.gov, but it's actually not Just published. So he knows the guy. Got it. Um, so they have, uh, 62 patients, um, in the study and it's aged 44, um, is that kind of like the average age for it? So it's not like the older, you know, population. Mm -hmm. And one thing just to kind of mention real quick too, that I thought was kind of interesting is when you mentioned like the cytokine storm. That's right. Um, yeah. So one of the things that I've always, cause when this first started happening, right, everybody was saying that this is only going to be, if you're real elderly or, you know, the real young, those are the ones that are going to be most susceptible to it. Mm -hmm. And then we started seeing like 20, 30, 40 year olds pass away from it. Right. And so one thing I thought was kind of interesting that I'd never really thought of before, and this is a very simplistic way of putting this, but it just, just made sense to me is, you know, when, if that cytochrome, you know, storm kind of takes over, like if that's the key factor in causing all this inflammation and some of this breakdown right. in the body, you know, the, the younger population actually has a more intact immune system, a more, um, strong immune system. And so the, there's more for the virus to kind of hijack, if you will. Interesting. And, I haven't and, heard that. And I've cause, got a bigger weapon. Right. That's yeah. Cool. It's basically the same, same with like, um, you know, women that are pregnant. So their immune system's super heightened. And so they're going to be more susceptible because if this, if this virus hijacks that inflammatory system and causes that cytokine storm to really kick in, there's more to kick in in healthy patients. Wow. So it's not just an elderly or young. I mean, we'll see how it plays out at the end, unfortunately, but, um, it's not something that's like, I'm 20, I'm fine. You know, right, I don't need right, to worry right. about this. I'm going to go outside and that's right. And then, then you see what happens in New York. <laughs> it just goes <laughs> crazy. I mean, that's I mean, no, I mean, I'm not New being York facetious not about take it. But the threat seriously. There's like all these. There's tweets. also a gazillion of them, yeah. you know, and all that's smashed in together. So that's I get that. Yeah. Charleston. I mean, we don't feel like we're taking it super seriously either, unfortunately. Yeah. Today's traffic was not quarantine traffic. Yeah. No. Yeah, which it, it's it's nice traffic. 
but yeah, it's, it's better. De- it's definitely yeah. not stay at home. Don't go outside like, traffic. I mean, last week it was like unbelievable. I mean, yeah. I can get to work in like five minutes. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, for sure. The governor of Florida has been really strict on like travelers from New York recently. No kidding. Still running. Oh yeah, he's been. He's saying that anyone that gets off a plane from New York has to be quarantined. You're going to be tested once you get off the flight. Shut down all the beaches in Southeast Florida. Like we're on like almost full lockdown down here. And Florida has been hit harder than South Carolina, at least at this point, yeah. I believe. Oh, well, yeah. We had all those spring breakers in Miami. Plus, flirting. Oh, no. you know, we're kind of. I think at the beginning we handled this kind of like a hurricane. We said, ah, it's not going to be a big deal. We'll be all right. And now that it's a big deal, I'm kind of panicking a little bit more. That's so interesting. And here it's like almost the exact opposite in South Carolina. I think that people are kind of used to it and they're kind of bored of it. I mean, does there that was sound the, there was an initial rush of panic. Yes, very and, serious. And now it's almost it's almost even though around the country it seems to be getting worse as far as because this is where the like the deaths are coming and you're seeing all the mortality right. data. Yeah, people seem to be like, I don't know if it's not right in your community. Like you don't know somebody who has it, then it doesn't it doesn't feel real until it's like a really big deal. Yeah. But talking about your Plaquenil recommendation about like the treatment, so did you, did did you see ZPAC being much more used than just potentially preventing super infection, or is it like eh, it's probably okay? So is it not worth the risk of potential QT prolongation? Like what? Do you want before we oh, yeah. go that way? You, you want me to finish this? Then that way you can add your two cents to it. <laughs> Sorry if it's dinging. Like it's the uh, I'm first, I can't sh- I can't turn off these messages on my computer. It's just <laughs> no. Too popular. It's okay. It's definitely not that. <laughs> you, did you text um, them back and say please stop messaging me? Yeah, like okay, please. I won't. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, <laughs> dings again. <laughs> no more messages. Enter. <laughs> so uh, sixty-two patients. Um, they the patients received kind of standard treatment plus five-day course of the hydroxychloroquine uh, at 400 milligrams a day. And so the, you know, when they say standard treatment, they're talking, you know, antivirals, antibiotics, immunoglobulins, plus or minus steroids. Um, yeah, there was a whole bunch of patients that were excluded, such as those who were severely or critically ill, patients that were in renal failure, um, and other, you know, ICU-type patients. So basically the patients that were in, uh, to quote uh, Dr. Eddie on here, he says um, these, you know, Bottom line is these patients are not sick sick. Um, you know, they're fairly young, um, fairly healthy. And so the end point that they were looking for was um, basically the time to clinical recovery based on like body temperature, cough, remission time. Um, and then fewer patients in the control group had fevers. And despite this, the, and I'm, I'm reading verbatim what he wrote, so I'm not taking credit for this. He says, despite this, the fever resolved quicker in the hydroxychloroquine group. Um um, and then, jeez, uh, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> I don't know how to turn this thing off. Um, fewer patients had cough in the control group, and also uh, there was fewer patients that had cough in the um, hydroxychloroquine group as well. So the bottom line is the patients that got hydroxychloroquine felt better um, and had the res- their you know quality of life restored quicker. I think I must have misunderstood you. This is like a real trial. Yeah, what do you think? This I'd is a real tr- well. So far, you well, mostly it's observational. I'm not used to this. Yeah, a lot of it's like observational. So no, this- so far everything has been coincidental findings right. that we happen to have gotten. Right. Like, I mean, the Gautred has a huge criticism that they only did it in like the patients who needed treatment. Right. You know, it's and so like versus a control group is that really fair? Right. Um, but this is like unbelievable. I mean, Gautret trial. I mean, that's the one that only had the 80 patients in France, right? That was the with no comparison to placebo. More recently, well, well of course not. I mean, again, this is like our first trial that i've even heard of concerning right. this like that's unbelievable 
But I mean, even in this Gautrat one that was looking at the 80 patients, I mean, only 15% of those patients were febrile, which we know that almost 94% of COVID-19 positive patients have present with fever. That's the number one thing we're screening for. So even in this 80-person trial that Gautrat looked at, only 15% mm. of our febrile, then what were they really even, which patients were they looking at? Um, I guess mild. <laughs> yeah, it's I, mild. So then when you're looking at the results of all these great recovery rates, I mean, they weren't that bad to begin with, you know? So yeah, really. So like to go off that, um, I feel like that kind of springs the question of like false positives and negatives. And like, to be clear, at least in South Carolina, we use the Quest RT-PCR, which is 100% sensitive, 100% specific in the right patients. So the problem in where I, I, I mean, this is my opinion, I'm not citing anything, but my theor, my expert theory, opinion. my expert opinion, thank you so much, is um, I have a doctorate. Um, <laughs> my, uh, my theory is that we are actually getting a lot of uh, false negatives because this is a nasopharyngeal swab and um, we, all, we get like MRSA swabs all the time, which is like a little, um, but to get like a nasopharyngeal, I don't know if you've ever had one, even for like the flu or something, it hurts like hell and you do it for 10 seconds straight. It's crazy. Yeah, you have to show that thing way at the nose. Yeah. So my thought is that we're probably getting bad samples, maybe. Maybe. Probably. Like if they're not shoving it far and long like, enough. Like let's say you just stick it in a patient's nose. The patient has AMS. You know, the patient's violent. The patient has mucus coming out. You know, you're just getting in there. You're getting a sample. You, you, like, see, oh, a, you sample. see a wet swab. You're like, we got some stuff. And again, I mean, like if it were me doing it, that's what I'm saying. I feel like that's what I would do. I would say, okay, got plenty here. Um I just feel like maybe there's a chance that our actual sample collection technique, um, by now I'm sure it's better because like, like this has been everywhere. This like nasopharyngeal swab question. Um, so like, sure, surely by now it's better, but in terms of like actual efficacy, this, the test is pretty good. And there's, uh, there's several other tests like in the pipeline still too. Yeah. Which is yeah. Pretty yeah, cool. Pretty, just, pretty hopeful. Pretty. It's, it's just crazy to see how quickly they're able to turn this stuff out mm -hmm. um, amazing how quickly the fda can move when it needs to yeah right a lot of ema is going on. <laughs> the um the other thing that um that study showed was the ct scan on day zero and then day six after giving that hydroxychloroquine um the pneumonia so they had improvement in patients that also had pneumonia um in 80.6 percent in the hydroxychloroquine arm versus 54.8 percent in the control arm so, um, and then the other thing he mentioned was that, uh, four patients progressed to severe illness in the control group. Um, so that's almost 13% of the group, none in the hydroxychloroquine group. And we had one patient that reported a rash in the hydroxychloroquine group and one that reported a headache. So, pretty um, good. yeah, so I think that's, we can get away with that. Man, it's such small samples. It's it crazy is, but that we have to go on that. That is, yeah, but I mean, this is like remarkable. Like, we've had nothing like this before. I hope I can. <laughs> it's true. It's interesting, though, that they're. First of all, that, don't even think for a second you're on Dr. Eddie's level. I know I'm not. How but, dare you? But I would like to read it. <laughs> it's my, it is, this is my boy you're talking about. I'm not criticizing. That I've met a couple so, times. So that's more healthy, non-like non critical. It's interesting that they exclude those because, like, when you're making a risk benefit and you're considering uh, whether it's prolonged QT or whatever you're considering, a lot of times you're like, well, this person very well may die if we don't try something. So we're definitely going to do this as opposed to a healthy person who will probably recover, they just might, you know, spread it longer, have prolonged morbidity. Now, I mean, if they exclude them, though, 
Does that mean that they didn't get treatment? I think it just means that they weren't right, randomized. They just weren't inc- right? Uh, right. I'm not saying that it was like unethical. I'm just saying that we're not seeing the results from what happened oh, with, sure. the, with yeah. the more critical patients. So I think that's part of the problem too, right? Is because we can't really randomize. I mean, that's really the only way to to really establish like a, a true baseline is through randomization. Because we can say all day long, like, oh, we gave these patients hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin or hydroxychloroquine monotherapy, and then these patients didn't. But then there's so many different variables that you have to take into account for that that you, unless you do randomization and make sure the baseline characteristics are um, equivalent, you really can't use the data all that well. Right. But then it's super hard with these, you know, amount of with the amount of patients and whatnot to actually truly randomize and be ethical about it at the same time. I mean, and I, I think that's where like the discovery trial might come in. Hopefully, there's like this trial in Europe that has like. Uh, what is it? Three thousand patients. Three thousand five arms. It's unbelievable. You got five. Yeah, five arms. But one. Why are they doing hydroxychloroquine by itself? Um, so the azithromycin thing is actually just like a really brief, um, kind of guess. I would say. I think that's the polite way to say it. Um, azithromycin is not. It's not like we're treating a co-infection every single time. Like maybe sometimes, sure. If they have like an atypical pneumonia, sure. Um, but what we're really quote unquote treating is that anti-inflammatory mechanism of azithromycin. And to be honest, I'm not like, I've done some research into how azithromycin could work here. The problem is just that uh, there's so much on how azithromycin works. And it's, it's a mixture of interferons. It's a mixture of upregulation of COX. It's, a, it's like all of these uh, different, like, um, I think it's like even a few epithelial growth factor uh, pathways. It's like unbelievable how many different ways azithromycin could work. Um, and so anyway, hydroxychloroquine on its own should be okay. So <laughs> the, the azithromycin is kind of on the same, like, so same with like, uh, with like the gold guidelines when they recommend patients that, you know, have been smokers or worried about right. H flu, you're worried, yeah. you're, um, after you've been on standard treatment, this sometimes there's pa- people that will add in azithromycin because of the anti-inflammatory properties. It's kind of just in the same process, right? I believe so, but yeah, it's hard yeah. to say. Um, so the, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see like what that discovery trial, I guess, shows. But um, the other thing is the pa- the number of patients. Um, 3,000 is a little bit better than you know, what we had before. Um, so, yeah, the only thing I'm worried about that is, though, even if we get good results, we still don't know if adding the azithromycin, like from the first study, is truly better. Right. So it's, like, <laughs> mono- so it's like we can't really extrapolate that either. So. so I guess the question is, if you're considering and you think it might help, is it safe and um so that's the, res, that's the, I guess that's the question, depending on the patient. Kind of looking at some, when I was originally doing some of this research, some azithromycin data, when originally about a month ago this came out, there was a study done back with MERS, which is similar, not the same, but azithromycin, there was a large trial done where there was no benefit on 90-day mortality compared to placebo at that point. So Yikes. looking at the data from MERS, maybe it won't be able to be extrapolated into this, but if we're seeing data in other senses, so then maybe those other mechanisms might be providing benefit. But as far as MERS goes, they were like, this is not working. Yeah, that's a good point. And speaking of MERS, it's you know, it's one thing that's interesting. I hear several people mentioning like, well, at least, you know, summer's coming and this thing will kind of be taken uh, because of that warm weather. It won't be able to grow. I'm like, uh, I hear that so much. It's unbelievable. So MERS is a very similar Literally. structurally, and it's in the Middle East, which I'm, the last East. time I checked, it's hot there. So yeah. so there's this one, gosh, and I'm going to look so bad for not having my source, but there's Ugh. one in China, 143 patients, and it's literally just observational, and they just noticed that depending on where you live, 
they decided somehow that each degree of Celsius that you increase, you have a 1.1 to 1.5% less chance to catch COVID. It is, no it is a huge extrapolation, but I think that's what people are basing this claim on or the fact that they heard that it's not heat labile, which really means, I mean, I think it means you can't boil it, but it's going to be fine. I mean, it lives in the human body, which is a little hotter than room temperature. Is it really? Yeah. All right. Wow. <laughs> he said, wow. You actually got me. <laughs> you looked over you, the face, your face you just made was like, you must be so That's stupid. That's not my face. I, was, I don't know if I should answer. Oh, geez. All right. Um, Nicole, any other thoughts on that particular regimen? As far as the azithromycin? Or the hydroxychloroquine in general that you've seen? Uh, the biggest thing that I was looking at in this, that French, the recent gautret that was looking at the 80 patients. Yeah. I mean, that... 15% febrile, that's not a great, I just think that they weren't looking at the right population of patients where they came up with this new score that they kind of made up and that just doesn't seem. I mean, the new score is like used by everybody now though. I mean, I'm not a huge fan either because the new score takes like age into account, which is like, it's kind of like a giant risk factor that changes. And I don't love that. Because the age one won't change, but if you do it versus a younger person, they'll have a lower news score all the time. It's weird. Yeah, I don't love that score, but I mean, other than just looking at a really specific, strange population, that's kind of the thing that stood out the most to me. They're reporting all this really great data, but I don't know, looking at the first one that they did, they had 100% you know, success rate at their primary outcome with the six patients getting the hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. I mean, that's a pretty good number, but then... Yeah, also they remembering that so they, much. Yeah. Right, they included so much. And then also looking at those dropout at the full, over 14% dropout rate. So if you, at, died, mm. if you at home uh, look at the most recent Gautret, my recommendation is just look at it for an observation of how long you're going to test positive after treatment. Because that is, I think, great data. Um, it doesn't tell you how to treat your patients, but it tells you how long they're going to test positive. Which is generally? It's usually about five days. Yeah. Um, it really peters off after that. Yeah, there's not much more to get out of that one. And so the idea is if you're still testing positive, you're still shedding and you can still spread? Maybe. Or not necessarily. <laughs> that part's not not evaluated very well. <laughs> but I, So it, there was like a comment on it that said, oh, so this is like C. diff. Um, because they're saying that it, when you're testing that low, you're not going to spread it, but it's still you still test positive for right. it, which is similar to C. diff. But I, we, have no da- we have no data to support that. So. Right. Isn't there a whole conversation right now looking into data and trials, looking at whether this is airborne or droplet? Because right now it's considered droplet. But I feel like I've seen some... In the hospital, that's a great point. In the hospital, we just treat it as both because like, why wouldn't you? Like there's, unfortunately, and like one of the main healthcare associated uh, vectors is just like fomites. So like, you know, like masks, cloths, beds, um, floors, I guess counts as a fomite. I don't know. You know what I mean? Um, it's just hard to control for everything, unfortunately. Better to just treat it as airborne. Mm-hmm. So what about the, the concerns with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin on QT prolongation? Because that's the big thing that everybody keeps bringing up yeah. to talk about, you know, as like a, a quote-unquote counseling point. Yeah, so this weekend ACC came out with their guidance, and I think their guidance is like top-notch. They've got – I always love when any kind of guideline has – a number after every single sentence they have. And that's what these guidelines have is they cite every clause even. Um, and one of the most important ones, like you're saying is the ACC, ACC, wow, the QTC. Um, so azithromycin on its own, sure, it increases the QTC, but um, 
uh, at least as far as I've learned, I had to look into it for um, our chronic azithromycin patients uh, that um, have COPD. And it's never, at least in the COPD trials, it's not been shown to significantly clinically change QGC. It just uh, surrogately increases it. And so the risk that we see, though, is when it's comboed with another QTC prolonging agent, that's where we're like, okay, now it does it every time. Like, right. What are we doing wrong? Um, so hydroxychloroquine is, hydroxychloroquine is one of those because um, I think these guidelines are actually pretty lenient, too. I think they say, like, starting under 500 milliseconds. That's, yeah. That's pretty nice. That's a, that's a big window. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, they really just, as far as, like, their absolute contraindications, it's, it's only a certain QT or mm -hmm. if they have, you know, severe renal or hepatic failure. Otherwise they're like, you can stratify these people and they gave some guidances, you know, how to calculate a risk score, um, with some of the things that increase risk being uh, female age over 68, being on a loop diuretic potassium being less than 3.5 are kind of mild risk uh, factors. But um, more importantly, heart failure, sepsis, if you're on at least two QTC prolonging drugs, which I guess being on Plaquenil and ZPAC, boom, automatically gives you being on two QTC prolonging drugs. Mm. Um, all those are going to increase your risk. And if they pretty much say if you're a low risk, you're probably okay to go forward if you feel like it's appropriate. Medium risk consider and then high risk, you know, obviously mm. may want to avoid it um, or just go with, I would think, Plaquenil by itself as opposed to adding on ZPAC. And the loop diuretic and serum potassium being less than 3.5, that's because if, if you're on both of those, you're at risk for having low magnesium, which, right. is, which is why they are counting those into the QT prolongation because then you're, that alone puts you at risk for torsades. Right, and torsades is the big thing that we worry about with the with prolonged QT. Yeah. QT. Otherwise, we don't really care if the QT is prolonged, if they're not going to have some sort of arrhythmia. Yeah. But they do mention, like, even it's, of course, a consideration, uh, but ACC mentions that chloroquine has been used for a really long time and they don't really have much evidence at all of um, uh, cardiac death or an arrhythmic death from that from the world health organization they also mentioned that in a lot of countries where it's used frequently for malaria there's not great surveillance as far as if that you know would have actually been um, accounted for uh, but it has been used for a long time cpacs have been used for a long time it's just the combination that may be concerning so i don't know the the prophylactic use and I don't know, prescribing it willy-nilly is definitely concerning, but things that they say can make you feel better is that um, it's probably it's going to be a short course. It's going to be, like you mentioned, four days or five to ten days max um, in a patient where the benefit is going to outweigh the risk. So that's why I was interested in seeing more critically ill patients because that's when they bring up these patients very well may die unless they get a treatment. So I think the QT might be you know the least of our worries. And they also give guidance as to how to monitor inpatient clinical patients if you're doing both of these and outpatient and um it's pretty substantial inpatient i mean they're you know put them on telemetry um monitor them you know x amount of uh hours you want to uh, recheck and do ecgs and all that kind of stuff outpatient it's a little more lenient but still they do recommend um some monitoring and potentially avoiding if you know they have significant renal or hepatic issues I mean, this, this guidance is like, if you work in a hospital, like let's say you're a student listening and you're in a hospital rotation and your preceptor is not considering this. I mean, this literally just like tells you what to do. It yeah. is so good. It is so great. Like that you, it's so rare that we get just like directions about like, look, 
you can check if you want. We cite every sentence, <laughs> but but this is how we're, the best, safest way to do it. Yeah, I mean, it walks you through discontinuing these meds, monitoring ECG, mm-hmm. renal function, hepatic uh, function, potassium, magnesium. Um, when possible, have a cardiologist, electrophysiologist measure the QTC, seek pharmacist input in the setting of acute renal hepatic failure. So they, they throw a little bone to pharmacists. So. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That's like the baseline deal. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So yeah, that's good stuff. Um, so that and that came out two days ago, the twenty ninth. Two days ago, I want to say yeah. the 29th. Yeah. Cool. Um, anything else on that stuff on hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and all? Uh, last thing I forgot to mention: uh, we shouldn't be extrapolating from Gautret too closely. Their dosing was wildly different from what most places in America are using. We're using like I think most places are either doing four hundred twice a day for the first day, then two hundred twice a day for four days, but in some places do like eight days. Um, Gautret did 600 twice a day for five days. Like it's like completely different. Um, so I would say that their QTC risk, if any, is going to be seen in that trial. Um, I mean, again, they're not reporting many clinical outcomes, but you know. So, you know, one of the, the combos that they were looking at, um, the Kalitra that everyone's all excited about, mm-hmm. um, from what I've heard and Patrick, correct me if I'm wrong and Nicole, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, the, preliminary stuff that's coming out of China right now, it looks like it's not all that effective. Is that what you've seen as well? Uh, I mean, everything I see just says like no difference, no difference. Um, but I think this is Nicole, what do you think? Yeah, that's what I've been seeing is basically no difference. Um, yeah, that's unfortunate. I mean, it's such a cool idea to repurpose a drug, but that's why we have Plaquenil, but it's such a cool (laughs) idea to repurpose a drug like Coitra. And unfortunately it just might not be there. Yeah. So uh, what else? What, what, what have you, uh, you know, when, when this first kind of started getting into the limelight, you know, one of the things that kept getting brought up was because, you know, it looks like the virus used, utilizes ACE2 to kind of oh, infect, the, infect uh, yeah. the cells. Um, uh, people were like, you should totally stop your ACE inhibitors uh, and so, ARBs. So, man, this is way more complicated than it sounds. It's like nuts. <laughs> Sorry, so, go ahead. Ask the question. No, I mean, like, uh, I, I get where the mechanism kind of the theory came from, but it looks like it hasn't fully been kind of played out. And now there's even talk that um, adding like an ARB Mm -hmm. could potentially be beneficial because they have at least one study going on inpatient and at least one going on outpatient. They probably have more by now. Um, Looking at Losartan, I think 25 Mm -hmm. milligrams for 10 days. Uh, Like regardless of what you come in on. Um, It's actually a really neat kind of thing. I mean, um, Mike kind of went through it but uh, real short, I mean, we're noticing that very young children are not horribly affected by this disease. Um, in fact, they're like probably the best off in part in terms of like the age group. And the thought is because their ACE2 expression in their lungs is just so low um, that, or excuse me, <laughs> so high, <laughs> sorry, um, that when the virus attaches, usually it like deactivates. Um, oh, wait, which is it? Now I'm confusing myself. Oh, no. I've been saying so low for weeks. I think it's so low. Um, so the virus has literally <laughs> less attachment sites. Um, forget, forget that part. <laughs> so, so that'll be low. Should trust me the rest of the time, I swear. So when we're talking about this like um, dry cough that happens with an ACE inhibitor, right? Yeah. Like what's causing that? Aggregation of bradykinin, aggregation of substance P and dothalin. We're talking about like angiotensin too, right? Um, but when we're talking about COVID, we're seeing a similar dry cough because when the virus attaches to your ACE2 receptors, not only does it bind and get into the cell, but it actually deactivates and downregulates your ACE2 receptors. Um, so it itself can both downregulate your ACE2 in your lungs at least, um, and then additionally 
cause QTZ prolongation on its own. So like we got to, I mean, I think I failed to mention that earlier. Um, but aside from that, the thought is that if someone comes in on an ACE inhibitor and like, let's say they're really hypertensive and they swear they're adherent and all that, the thought is that maybe over time, the virus down-regulating all of a sudden is causing their ACE2 inhibitor because like it's in, it's systemic manifestation at that point, right? So like it's almost like the ACE2 inhibitor isn't like getting a chance to work. Whereas ARBs, we're talking about like, there's two different ones, right? I mean, there's several, but like talk about like ATR1, like angiotensin receptor one with ARBs. Since the virus can't attach there and since we're like actually changing that, the thought is that ARBs, you can control blood pressure a different way, but also hopefully cause the upregulation of a different kind of receptor and get ACE2 back to like baseline. It's, it's so complex. I'm trying to like explain it well. I feel like I've looked at like a hundred diagrams of it. I've done the same thing actually. Um, uh, an, another DIQ that I recently did was looking at ACE2 and then the role of ARBs, ACE, ACE inhibitors, and then NSAIDs. And studies have shown in only animal models that ACE2 is upregulated with the use of ACE inhibitors and ARBs. And ACE2 also plays that dual function. So one, it's the viral entry point because of that spike protein on the SARS-CoV-2. So it attaches right to the ACE2 pool. But then ACE2 also plays the role of um, producing angiotensin 1-7, which has anti-inflammatory, antioxidant pro properties. So in human studies, then they've also looked at patients with increased levels of ACE2. And then they've seen patients with increased levels of the enzyme ACE2. They see better cardiovascular outcomes in them because of the anti-inflammatory properties of the angiotensin 1-7. So it is incredibly complicated. Looking at all those diagrams, I think I've looked at just as many as you have. It's There are so many, and the mechanism, and then the pathophys, and then the normal phys, it, and then where the SARS-CoV-2 decides to attach, it's throwing everything off. So I think that there's no one way for us to know if ACEs, ARBs, NSAIDs are, if it's the upregulation that's causing an increased um, risk or because what we're seeing right now is okay patients on ACEs and ARBs have hypertension right we're also seeing worse <laughs> outcomes in a hypertensive patient so it's kind of like this weird connection where we don't see it in studies yet there's studies in the works but looking at the data of saying okay these patients if the mechanism is what we see in the rat models if we're actually seeing the increased ACE2 and then we're seeing worse outcomes in those patients is there a connection and what is it yeah, and that's why it looks like too um, with like diabetes and and uncontrolled hypertension, some of those disease states, because you get that upregulation in in ACE two, um, then uh, somebody said we cannot hear the speaker on Instagram. I know, I'm sorry. Um, you'll listen to the podcast after I post it tonight. I promise you'll be able to hear the speaker. Um, the uh, I haven't figured out how to link um, the guest over. Google Hangouts with the person, like Instagram Live. So it's a work in progress. So bear with me. We're aware. Don't worry. Um, somebody wrote, I wish I could hear Nicole. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Nicole, no. you have fans. You'll, you'll hear Nicole on the real one, I promise. Um, so, by the way, I, I don't think I mentioned, but like, let's, if you're a student or if you're a pharmacist, doctor, nurse, um, anything, anyone involved in healthcare and you want a good, resource for this um there's two main ones that i've been recommending so far as if and they're both like completely free as far as i'm concerned as you look up either ashp covid or elsevier um covid the ashp guideline or not guideline a uh, review is really good it gives you like a very brief summary of every piece of data we have um 
And the Elsevier one is like this just gigantic list of you really got to wade through. Uh, they're both pretty good. No, it's good. We'll put the uh, links like in the show notes so cool. you can get to them. But yeah, no, that's good stuff. Um, what else? Any anything else about this you want to mention or bring up? Yeah, so um, what's in the pipeline? What's the pipeline now? It's, it's I mean, does Plaquenil will seem like the most promising thing or? I mean, it's hard to say just like remdesivir. I don't think we've talked about that yet. We haven't, but we, we mentioned it briefly in the other episode. Um, remdesivir, like. Uh, How close are we to getting outcome data with that? Do you know? Um, I heard the, it's April, early May. Yeah, we're looking at the okay. problem. The problem is that it's like very much restricted right now. Um, so, like we kind of mentioned earlier with pregnant patients, really they're kind of front of the line for remdesivir right now, um, just because of all of the potential complications with hydroxychloroquine, especially like you know both teratogenically and otherwise. Um, but remdesivir is a cool, you know, it's a cool idea. I just hesitate before that data comes out to like say that I think it's going to be better. I think it's hard. Yeah. What do you all think? I haven't looked at the most recent data with it, to be honest with you. Um, other than, you know, what we've already mentioned that potentially promising, but yeah, I, yeah I'm curious to see how it plays. I don't even, I honestly don't even want to speculate because I have, and I don't have an intelligent enough guess. Mm. Um, anything else you've seen, uh, Nicole at all, like in your, when you've been researching this stuff, any other treatment options or things they're looking at? I mean, as, as far as the remdesivir goes, I know that they're expanding the clinical trials to include as many patients as they can. I've seen a lot of that going on, um, where they've kind of restricted this hydroxychloroquine use to patients who can't be enrolled in that. So I think, I don't know, based on that, what we can extrapolate from there. As far as the other treatments, there was that one that they were looking at in China. Hang on, let me see what that one was. Tosilis. I think we talked about that one, right? Yeah. So, yeah. okay. Ectemra. Um, what's our opinion on Ectemra? Today I got probably 20 people that asked me if we can, if we can use it. And that's all from data from China. So the problem is that all of these big repositories like i mentioned i mean the ashp one is with a caveat if you go to the ashp resource and you look up tocilizumab you'll see here's our dosing it works shut up bye um but if you look at the actual data what they cite is one that study from china not peer-reviewed only available via chinaxiv.com some website where they only have unpublished manuscripts um, two, it's like only 20 patients. It's like uh, really awful. Number two source that they cite is a press release from, um, I think it's like the National Academy of Science of the People's Republic of China's um, spokesperson says it works and that's their source. And then three, and by the way, I'm not exaggerating. They do say patients get better and that's like the whole source. Um, and then three is um, they're citing the Actemra uh, information for clinicians, if you go to the Actemra website, you can actually find all of the data that they have for um, uh, COVID. And they were actually just approved by the FDA for an awesome looking trial. The Cobacta. Um, correct. Yeah. I think that looks great, but it's slated to finish in like December. Right. Um, so the problem is that if you go to the Actemra, like prescribing info, they say in the prescribing info, look, we have no evidence this works. However, and then they list like three pages of this Chinese study and they list like their upcoming trials and they say like, look, hey, if you want to get this. Um, so it's, it's kind of weird. I mean, I understand when you want to sell your drug, but it's a weird feeling to read someone say this probably doesn't work. But if you want to use it in your patients, uh, talk to us. Um, 
I think the problem is a lot of people are just reading the title of that Chinese study that says like um, tocilizumab is effective in severe um, COVID pneumonia. And as I'm sure y'all already know, those the criteria for severe pneumonia they used was like super bad. You had to have a respiratory rate over 30 and then you have severe pneumonia and that's it. Let's treat, hmm. let's treat you with tocilizumab. Um, and I think it's probably great. I mean, we use it in like all sorts of cytokine storms, but I think it's great for the cytokine storm regardless of ideology, not just COVID. Okay. I'm off my high horse about tocilizumab. I, I think it's crazy. <laughs> I think it's crazy we're even talking about it. Sorry, sorry to bring it up, Patrick. No, it's not your I dealt with it all day. I just want to make it clear. I just want to make it clear. No evidence whatsoever. Um, no. What about uh, vitamin C? Have you seen that? The vitamin like, C where they're, zinc thing? The, yeah, the, where I think it was the cit, um, Citriali um, No, I haven't seen this. Trial. I think um, it was like 96-hour vitamin C infusion compared to placebo in patients that also had sepsis or ARDS. Um, they didn't see any like difference in, um, I think, the primary outcome of like where they were looking at like organ dysfunction, um, certain you know, other inflammatory mediators, things like that. But the, I think the mortality was actually lower with vitamin C. Um, I also saw something else that said that the patients that were um, on a vent um, potentially could get off quicker when you do vitamin C infusions. Wow. Um, I don't know what that one is in front of me. I, I can't remember where I even saw that. I saw something at work today. So um, I'll have to find that reference. Huh. But uh, no, I mean, that's, that's a cool idea. kind of interesting. Nicole, have you seen that? Um, what are your thoughts on any of that? Have you seen or looked through any of that stuff? Uh, I kind of looked at the vitamin C. Uh, it, they talked about it in the um, surviving sepsis guidelines, kind of looking at, eh, probably not going to be useful here. Um, I don't I don't think that it's going to do any harm if patients want to use vitamin C outpatient. I don't think that IV vitamin C is really going to, Unless there's more study, like more data out on there, yeah. I don't, I don't really see that one going too yeah. far. I mean, I hope so because it would be great to have, you know, vitamin C is the thing that really turns us around. But I don't see it going anywhere too quickly. It is frustrating because as a clinician, especially the ones in the hospital, they're like, "We got to do something," you know. So you know, yeah. there's there's lack of there's posterity everywhere, or there's um, paucity everywhere. But we got to do something. Well, I mean, like let's say you're in their shoes, you're in attending at an ER, and someone has every COVID symptom. What do you want to start them on? You know, right? But for me, I I haven't been in that situation, but I would think that it would be a more severe situation. Like if I'm sending them home to go self quarantine, sure, I don't necessarily, right. I don't necessarily think that I have to start something right there. But it's in the the vent patients, the patients who are severe where I'm like, I got to do something here or they're going to die, you know? Yeah. And honestly, what you're saying, I, I, I really think that's why everyone's leaning toward the hydroxychloroquine. It's just, it's cheap. It's tolerable. The end. Like that's all you really need. Something. I think people are really just looking for something. Right. And yeah. even though the data is not that awesome for hydroxychloroquine, like it's okay and it's leading, it's potentially going somewhere. It's progressing. It's, <laughs> yeah. Slowly, but it's going somewhere. They're saying we, we'd rather try something than nothing. Yeah. Have, have y'all heard anything about the production? Like, are they ramping up production? I, I know that they donated, like, I think it was Bayer, donated a whole bunch. Um, oh, yeah, and like Sandoz. Right, right, to be right. studied. But I feel like they would be like, stop in production with some other things. Let's make a whole bunch of Plaquenil because we've got to get this out to people. But I haven't heard anything. Wasn't that Trump's announcement that was um, like the, uh, he's going to, funnel money into anyone producing this medication. Okay. See, I hadn't heard. I mean, so I, mean, I genuinely wondering. don't know. I, I remember for like two weeks ago. Yeah. 
I think that the uh, the governor of Florida the other day, he did a press conference and he said, yeah, I talked to some of my friends in Israel and we got a whole bunch of hydroxychloroquine coming in. So I don't know where we're getting it, but somehow we're getting it in Florida. I don't care where, where we get it from. I just like to get some more, you know, because I got <laughs> I got lupus patients that I got to give it to. So that's, too. that's the big problem is yeah. like in that I think the. Uh, like the medical board and the board of pharmacy, at least in South Carolina, I'm sure everywhere put out um, warnings, you know, not warnings, but guidance, guidance saying look, one physician shouldn't be prescribing this to themselves prophylactically. Um, I get it. I mean, we would keep them healthy. However, um, we created a shortage very quickly of hydroxychloroquine. Now all these patients that are relying on it for lupus and, um, you know, other rheumatoid conditions now, can't get it and mm-hmm. they're, they're putting a whole other group at risk so it's it's kind of interesting hopefully they give us some guidance as to what to do there i mean i guess you just got to transition them to something in the meantime yeah i mean which you know there's there's methotrexate there's a leflutamide switch yeah, yeah. Leflutamide. there's different things or, or we could you know, use a biologic and oh, really yeah. you know the ones that have insurance let's get them on here, here anyway here yeah they might give it to you for, for a year and then after that you got to pay yeah <laughs> There you go. Like the Movo style. There was a joint statement released actually the other day from the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. They released a statement the other day talking specifically addressing this, where I really like this statement I have a highlight over here saying, um, additionally, if hydro- hydroxychloroquine is determined to be a viable treatment for SARS-CoV-2, shortages will limit the ability of providers to optimally treat critically ill patients. So I think that's a hugely powerful statement where if we're seeing shortages already because of prescribers hoarding or as given as prophylactic treatment where there's no studies that have been looking at prophylactic treatment, then if this does come out to be a great option where we're seeing benefits in critically ill patients, if we're on a shortage by then, then that's not going to be good for those critically ill patients. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first, the first uh, breath of the Plaquenil, you know, that all the pharmacies and all the health systems just ordering as much as they can. I mean, they're going to order every single bit that's in there. So that's that's why it's all gone. So, I mean, I don't know. I feel like some people probably have a fair amount and others just don't, you know? Yeah. Yeah, today for the first time I heard the term um, drug hoarding. Never heard that before. It sounds like what you're describing. Yeah. I've, 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 I've definitely, uh, I've seen firsthand, you know, people talking about wanting to write, you know, and basically have a collection at the ready for their, you know, personal okay. use and things like that. Um, you know, which I, I'm not saying I blame anybody for that, but I think that if every single healthcare professional does it, right. You know, now if your health system wants to use some of their stock to, you know, potentially keep keep, it, keep yeah. their, their doctors and nurses going. 100%, like, I get it. Like I said, I'm right, not, I'm not hating right. on it whatsoever, you know, but, but I just, it is, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah. What else, guys? Anything? Um, just like other treatments, or about? I mean, just comments, concerns, so, whatever. Uh, <laughs> Nasty remarks. The corticosteroid conversation. I was just going to say corticosteroids. Yeah, she's calling you out, dude. <laughs> no, she got me. Yeah. Uh, That's number right, one, Patrick. I think I think we probably shouldn't be using them. But the um, who was it? Gosh, I want to say it was Gina. Don't quote me on that. Um, we got some cool guidance though that if someone's on chronic ICS, it's probably a bad idea to withdraw that ICS for COVID. I feel like that's begging for an exacerbation. Um, that's really the only input I have. What have you seen, Nicole? Yeah, no. uh, I've seen the, uh, especially looking at some of the old, older MERS studies, they were seeing worse outcomes with 
corticosteroid use. So kind of, I, I think originally, at least a month ago, I don't know if it's been updated since then, but CDC and World Health Organization were saying do not use corticosteroids at this point unless there's another compelling indication where corticosteroids absolutely will have improved benefit and improved outcomes. Because as of right now, what, um, corticosteroids, based on the MERS and the previous SARS studies, were saying that it's inhibiting viral shedding. So if you're inhibiting the viral shedding, then we're going to keep this around longer. So right. that's what I've been seeing. Um, so unless there's an overwhelming benefit to use some kind of steroid, I think still the recommendations are to avoid them. So, so my thing is, what about like intranasal corticosteroids, you know, glucocorticoids? So you're talking like flonases and the budesonides and all that. Mm. Um, the people, because it's pollen season, at least in the South here, it's pollen season, right? Everybody's sure. starting to break out the flonase and stuff again. I'm wondering if that's going to end up causing an issue because uh, hmm. it's it's going to you think it's bioavailable enough to cause a problem so not i don't mean systemically because no it's not and like i mean no patrick's laughing at me i'm punch patrick <laughs> i was asking head. very seriously I, I know i know but he took it as a serious <laughs> question so i don't think that um i don't think that like the the bioavailability is necessarily the issue. I mean, maybe some of the first generation ones possibly and you know some people but i'm just talking about because of where it's actually being administered, weren't you worried about the virus actually entering through the nasal passage in any way? I was also wondering, like, are we are we concerned for that? Like, wherever the steroid touches, does that make you at higher risk? Because, like, I think what you're saying makes sense. Like, if we're talking about nasopharyngeal tract and you're <laughs> literally yeah, inhaling you're this. Yeah, that's what um, you're saying. Then, like, how much of that goes into your lungs? I genuinely don't know. I, don't, I haven't looked at it in a long time. Yeah, it's, I, don't, I Some, don't think a ton. I mean, you get, I mean... I think probably there's, negligible. I mean, there, and there's even like some, I think it was um, Flonase, uh, Fluticasone with, I, I'm, I'm, I need to, should probably double check myself, maybe like Ritonavir or something like that. I can't remember what, but there's an interaction where they've had a couple of case studies that even using like intranasal Flonase is to cause a drug-drug interaction with like a really oh, strong... Wow. Um, inducer inhibitor kind of thing so wow. i mean it's super rare but i mean because there is that i'm mean, just wondering you know and i'm also talking out loud i have no idea what i'm talking about so I'm, uh, <laughs> that sounds smart i'm pontificating <laughs> in front of everyone but uh yeah i haven't hit that rx prep chapter yet so i don't know there you go. That. So, aside from those i already got off my high horse about tocilizumab all i have left is like there were those early tamiflus but y'all already discussed that there was that like um have we already talked about like the new new drugs? I mean, it's hard to discuss them, but like there's one from Emory that I know that's already in clinical trials. It doesn't have a name yet. There's there's that hydroxychloroquine prophylaxis trial with the healthcare providers in Minnesota and possibly more. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's probably everything I've got right now. Yeah, I think um, we've gone through it. Just like the biggest points are tolerable, probably works. What's the harm? We'll figure it out. Um, hopefully not in a bad way. Yeah. The problem is that yesterday, I don't know, Medscape is this awesome article about like how the death rates changed since we started treating and it's gone from like 1.7, 1.5, if I remember correctly. And like, that's a change. Mm -hmm. Um, and that'll definitely save lives if that's true. Um, but it's also like hard with all the confounders of this new social distancing, new quarantine. Cause I feel like when we started treating is also when we started taking it more seriously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot to think about here. Yeah. So, um, Nicole, is it cool if like we put your most updated version of your like review sheet and we'll put your yeah, name and everything on it and we'll make it available? 
Yeah, I'm gonna work on updating some of it once I get a new laptop charger. Of course, it just died well, five minutes before it was supposed to be there. So yeah, once I get a new laptop charger, I'll be sure to send that one over to you. Sweet, I'll make that available, and then we'll, that way we can you know get it out there because it it really is a good summary. Um, Thank you. So, so um, and then Patrick, are you cool if I put your email in the show notes if anybody has questions or anything? Uh, sure. I'm definitely not an expert, but I do read it every day. I mean. I'm just going to expose myself real quick because I want everyone to like learn like this. When I was with Mike, he told me you can probably afford an hour of studying a day outside of work. Um, and that's like the minimum, sure. But I feel like recently I've really started to do that um, because of the Medscape app. You see the MedPulse app, which is way better. Um, but the Medscape app will send you notifications to your phone whenever something really relevant happens. So I expect that like either by tonight or by tomorrow morning, I'm going to get news of Mike's trial <laughs> a little behind here. <laughs> but But it's cool because like, um, especially as a student, you can go in and say like, oh, this thing just happened. And your preceptor would be like, how do you know that? Mm -hmm. You can just say you're smart. You don't have to tell them. Right. <laughs> just crazy smart, You don't have bro. to tell them it's an app you could have too. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So this is just to kind of piggyback off that because this is totally off topic, but I do like Patrick's point. One of the things that I always tell, because one of the excuses I hear from students sometimes is- I don't have time. Right. Which I get. Like you're busy. You got all this stuff to learn for- school for rotations, whatever it is. So they say, you know, I don't have time to learn extra stuff because I'm already learning so much. So the thing I would suggest is while you're in school, regardless even if you're a P1, you have, you're drinking out of a fire hydrant for the first time um, with information. I would spend 10 minutes, like five minutes, whatever it is, something like looking up something that interests you. So even if you're talking about cardiology and pharmacotherapy or clinical medicine, whatever, you know, program you're in, you know, in pulmonology is just your jam. You love it. Look up something in pulmonology for five minutes and you'd be surprised how many rabbit trails you end up going down. And then when you get yourself in that habit of kind of looking up stuff on your own, using the apps, using the email forwards, things like that. Um, when you get out of school, everybody thinks you're going to have all this amazing time when you get out of school. <laughs> I wish I had as much free time as I did when I was a student. That's right. Um, and so it's one of those things that if you get in the habit now, like by the time you graduate, you're set and you're ready to go. So that's my, uh, two cents of old man wisdom at this point. I think that's something that like I, you know, throughout pharmacy school you develop as well as like your Liddy Val skills. I think that with the hype, the media hype of all these new trials coming out and everyone's talking about how great, you know, these drugs are, I think being able to sit down as a pharmacist and really analyze it, get into the nitty gritty, say what did they do well, what did they not do well, I think that's such an important skill that I don't think like P1s or even as a P2, I didn't appreciate it. So I had to do my own Liddy Val poster and was like, wow, all right, like this is why we're doing this. So especially now with all these new trials coming out, I think those skills are so important. Yeah, for sure. I agree completely. <laughs> so yes, um, thank you guys both for being here today. Um, I know everybody's busy with stuff, so appreciate doing this impromptu uh, podcast. Can we put this together in like an hour? So well done, everyone. <laughs> um, great. Thanks for having us. Thank and, yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Shout out to uh, um, Eddie, Dr. Eddie Joe um, on Instagram. He is at Eddie Joe MD. Um, check him out. Make sure you follow him. He's got a lot of awesome stuff on there. If you don't, so uh, he's he hooked us up with that with that study um, like literally two hours ago, maybe. Such and a cool um, so uh, <laughs> definitely. 
appreciate him. And uh, if you guys have any questions, shoot us an email. We'll we'll put Nicole and Patrick's stuff out there too, in case you guys want to link up with them at all. And um, if you want to reach us by text message, you can do that as well. Um, text the phone number 415-943-6116. You'll get an automated response back. And then um, if you fill out that information, I'll have you saved in my phone and I'll send you stuff. You can send me questions over text if you want. I'm a lot quicker answering that than I am email usually. But other than that, thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks for the support. We will catch you next time. See you up.